I'm Fran Tonkis of the Department of Sociology and LSE Cities, and it's my pleasure tonight to introduce Richard Sennett to speak to us about his latest book, Together, The Rituals, Pleasures, and Politics of Corporation. Richard is Professor of Sociology at New York University, and he's Professor Emeritus in Sociology here at the LSE, where he was one of the founders of the Cities Program, uh, which has at its heart as an academic program the spirit of collaboration. So we're particularly eager to hear your thoughts on that subject tonight. Uh, Richard's previous works are uh, really too numerous to enumerate, but the current book, as well as constituting the second volume in a planned trilogy on the theme of homo faber, building on... Um, his, his most recent, his previous book, The Craftsman, published in 2008, also reaches back to connect with a body of work which Richard has developed throughout his career in such books as Respect from 2002, The Corrosion of Character from 1998, and also reaching right back to those classic works in the field of urban social theory, The Fall of Public Man of 1977, and The Uses of Disorder, which I'm here to tell you was published in 1970. For tonight's procedures, Richard will speak to us for about 50 minutes. He will then take questions. He will then take drinks. And I hope that uh, at least some of you will join us in the atrium area afterwards in the uh, student services area. Um, I've been asked to remind you about the hashtag behind me, which Richard will understand, and I confess I don't fully, uh, but this will allow you to take part in a Twitter conversation about tonight's event. I'm not quite sure how I can reconcile that with my other usual request, which would be that you turn off your mobile phones, but <laughs> Richard might prefer you to keep them on if you were to tweet throughout, on topic, of course. Now, may I ask you all to join me in welcoming back Richard Sennett. Thank you very much. You know about hashtags. Only in theory. Um, before I begin, I'd like to introduce uh, somebody else, who is your new director, who is Craig Calhoun, who is down here. If you stand I'm up, <laughs> if you show them your hat, they will know how to recognize you always. So let's give a round of applause for our wonderful. I'm going to uh, talk to you tonight um, ab uh, about cooperation, um, and in a way, you sort of know uh, what I'm going to say. Let me get this watch off in advance. Uh, uh, sort of the large theme of what this subject is about which is that in modern capitalism, uh, forms of cooperation have diminished, which held what we think of as social capitalism uh, 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 more strongly together uh, than in the past. Neoliberal capitalism is, uh, shorts uh, social relations uh, in a way that um, create problems for people working together, dealing with ways of uh, balancing cooperation and conflict 
and, and competition. Um, it's uh, a subject that really has a very broad frame in what's happened in the political economy of uh, Britain and the United States and other liberal regimes in the last 20 or 30 years. Because this frame is so familiar to you, I thought that it might be worth just looking at uh, a little more detail before I get into the substance of the lecture, what it means to have um, a problem in everyday social life uh, with the experience of cooperation uh, at, a, at a much more sort of empiric daily level than, um, uh, than this rather familiar theme to us of the passage from social capitalism, or sometimes called corporate capitalism, into neoliberalism. And I'd refer you to a study which uh, you can read about in much greater detail in my book, my very inexpensive, beautifully designed book, um, which was done by UNICEF five years ago. And it tries to measure the uh, kinds of experiences of uh, cooperation, competition in 20 advanced uh, societies, mostly Eurocentric, although uh, uh, India and, uh, and uh, Turkey enter it into its calculations. And what it finds is that in the lives of children, six to eight, that they're already experiencing in the neoliberal regimes a kind of crisis in the, ex uh, in the in the uh, daily experience of, of cooperation. For instance, it finds that the US and the UK rank at the bottom of the 22 countries they surveyed in children studying together. Something that seems like a, a, a sort of elemental everyday thing, that outside the classroom, our two countries, the U.S. and the U.K., have children who, who simply don't... Um, um, sorry, we can't hear very well. I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. I, is this better? This microphone seems to be... I'm not uncooperative. It's uncooperative. How's yeah. that? Is that better? Is that okay? Uh, LSE, you know, we know about LSE and technology. Much better? Uh, what I was saying is that this, is a, this study sort of charts the everyday experience of lack of cooperation in, uh, and it makes a big contrast between neoliberal regimes in the U.S. and the U.K. and um, in other parts of, uh, of Europe. And it finds, for instance, that American and British children are at the very bottom of the 22 countries that are surveyed about the impulse of children to study with each other. It also finds something that I, f I find quite interesting in terms of the experience of cooperation between children and adults. It finds, for instance, that children in the Czech Republic spend uh, an average an hour and 40 minutes every day talking with adults, whereas the children in the United States spend 17 minutes talking to adults outside the classroom. And the UK is only a little better at 21 minutes. 
it finds thirdly that the US and the UK score by a quite a large measure much higher levels of bullying among seven and eight year olds than for instance students in Germany, the Scandinavian countries, and Central Europe. Now the reason these are interesting to me, interesting data, is that they suggest the beginnings of the depth of this subject, which is that cooperation involves, uh, and the lack of cooperation rather, involves measures of isolation, uh, either from peers or from uh, people of a different age. And it also involves an inability to manage aggression. All kids are rough with each other. Uh, but what the UNICEF findings are is that countries that score lower, uh, low on this cooperation score are ones in which children feel free to bully weaker children than themselves. So uh, it isn't just a matter of being nice uh, on the playground or playing sports together. There's, there's a kind of hidden depth in this. And when we talk about this rather large frame, we want to understand that there's uh, concrete experiences built into childhood uh, which affect this larger social penumbra. Now, I'm going to talk to you tonight about three things. I first want to talk to you a little about what cooperation is. Um, I then, and I'll be brief about that, just some the usual things academics do of definition and so on. I then want to talk to you about cooperation understood as a skill, and I'm going to try and lay out to you what kind of skills people need for a particular kind of cooperation. And then I'd like to say something to you about the reasons that I think uh, uh, neoliberal capitalism de-skills people in being competent to practice cooperation. And then if there's enough time, I'd like to say something about what might be done about this problem. Let me start with the kind of uh, definition of cooperation. The simplest way to understand it is that work, uh, that is cooperation is a matter of working with others to do things you can't do for yourself. It's a very, very simple definition that can serve us. And this is something that is structured into us genetically. We don't know where in the brain, but we know that at birth, um, all uh, human beings uh, have to practice this kind of cooperation in order to survive. They need to learn how to cooperate with whoever is feeding them in order to, in, in order to, uh, uh, in order to eat. Children need to practice this kind of cooperation in school in or order to learn. And of course, adults need to practice cooperation on those terms in order to um, be able to work with each other, whether it's in a workplace or in the military or in community life. But we make an error, I think, to think about cooperation as a kind of natural endowment just waiting to be expressed. Cooperation is also something that, learn, that is learned, that develops, that becomes a skill. And it does so under a particular set of conditions, as people have to learn to work with those who are different from themselves, or whom they don't understand, 
or who, whom they don't like. In other words, the more cooperation becomes an engagement with the other rather than with someone similar, the more skill is required in order to practice it. In the, um, according to psych psychologists, the, there are two kind of uh, watersheds in the development of learning how to couple cooperation with otherness. And they're developmental watersheds that appear uh, sequentially at the ages of five to, uh, to seven. The first is um, the, a kind of uh, conflict or tension that occurs between cooperation and autonomy. This is something that happens to youngsters, uh, so it's argued, between the ages of, of five, four, five, six, roughly. And the notion at this point is that when people, when young people begin to cooperate, they begin to feel that they're giving, they have enough of a sense of self that they're feeling that they're giving something away in, um, in cooperating with others. In other words, that before cooperation tended to be defined as a kind of win-win exchange, and around this time in the development of human beings, it becomes to be more of a zero-sum game. What I give to you in cooperating with you takes something away from myself because I have a nascent sense of having a self. The second great drama in the developmental cycle that occurs is how to balance uh, cooperation and competition. And for people like Sarah Hurdy, a wonderful um, psychologist at Harvard. She at Harvard, I can't, yeah. Uh, this is something that's developmentally programmed after children uh, begin to be aware of what this zero-sum game between autonomy and cooperation is about. I found in talking about cooperation the terrible error that some academics make about this is to think about cooperation and competition as opposites. These are academics who probably never played a team sport. Uh, and it's not simply a matter of cooperating with people like yourselves in order to compete against others, whether another team or uh, another, uh, uh, another group. It's also that you have to cooperate with people you compete against in order to set the ground rules for how you will compete. For instance, and this is, Hurdy is wonderful on this, the extreme attention which youngsters play, uh, uh, pay to cheating, that is, not by playing by the rules. You could have just Hobbesian warfare of each against all in, in a game. But around this age, the notion that you agree on how you're going to compete becomes very important for young people. Um, those are two developmental dramas in the development of cooperative skills. How to manage the relationship between cooperation and autonomy, and how to find a balance between uh, competition and cooperation. That is, how to put them together. 
These are not simple opposites. They're negotiations in which people uh, have to become more skilled uh, as, uh, they, as they develop. I should say finally about this psychological aspect that um, the, and this bears on the notion of pleasure in my book, the pleasures of cooperation, that as people become more able in human development to be able to deal with questions of, of autonomy, that is the zero-sum game, and balancing cooperation and competition, that means something that, uh, if, if you like, balances aggression with a set of opposite, uh, more neighborly impulses, uh, that a kind of strength develops, for which I use the term pleasure, but for which most psychologists use the term ego strength. And what they mean by that is very simple. That people who feel uh, that, they are, uh, that they're socially competent to deal with people who are unlike themselves experience a kind of pleasure, a kind of ease in the world that people who are un unable to deal with either competition, deal with conflict, deal with difference, do not. It's a very profound adult pleasure. Now, I'm not a psychologist. What I know about this is from the work that I'm uh, doing on skill development, which is what my homophobber series is, is about, is what the nature of those skills are that my, um, uh, the social skills are that might enable people to manage these developmental tasks. And in the second part of this talk, I want to describe how people become socially uh, more competent in dealing with these kinds of contrary uh, pressures, which are not contradictions, but which are, are complexities which need to be managed. And um, I'm going to try and do this, um, since we're on home territory here, in a fairly academic manner. I'm going to look at three polarities in the development of skills that I want to go through with you. The first is between dialectics and dialogics in the development of cooperative skill. The second is between declarative uh, and subjunctive forms of, of uh, communication with other people. And the third has to do with the uh, uh, conception of the other in terms of empathy or sympathy. I mean, this is fairly abstract, but just stay with me. I'll, I'll try and make it clear to you. Um, I'm going to argue to you f first that um, skills of cooperation uh, that deal with the difficult sort of cooperation of working with people who are unlike yourself, people whom you don't understand, or people you dislike, require dialogic rather than dialectic skills. And let me try and make this clear to you. You all probably learned, certainly not at the LSC, but lower down in your academic training, the dialectics was about 
the movement from thesis to antithesis to synthesis. That is, I say X, you say not X. We debate, and then we arrive at something which is Y, uh, a synthesis of X and, uh, X and not X. This is certainly not how Hegel understood dialectics. What he understood dialectics to be was that somebody would make a statement, as say an employer would make a statement like, you're not working hard enough. And the antithesis of that, and this is in the master-slave parts of the phenomenology, the antithesis of that would be that the slave would say, you know, this is really quite an interesting piece of work we have to do. In other words, rather than having an opposition, you have a disjunction. That's, for Hegel, that's what a thesis and antithesis is. That the slave defends him or herself, if you like, by changing the subject. And that what Hegel means by a synthesis is that gradually um, the master and the slave find a way of, of expressing to each other the views uh, that they have of each other in a way which allows them to come to some kind of uh, resolution and understanding. It's a conflictual model built around displacement. But the key to this model is the arrival, that there is a consummation, a denouement, uh, a synoikosmos in the Aristotelian uh, sense of it, that in the end, instead of displacing each other's speech, uh, they are able to speak to each other. This is the essence also of the Habermasian theory of communicative interaction. There is a catharsis in the end. Dialogics, and that's a kind of cooperation the synthetic moment is a kind of cooperative moment. Now, dialogics doesn't take that narrative form. The term dialogics is, some, is a, is a uh, theoretical term first developed by Michael Bakhtin uh, 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 in the 19, uh, 1930s. It was originally a literary term. Uh, but Bakhtin, in his, uh, he, Bakhtin was put to death by, by Stalin, and just before he was finally sent to the Gulag, Bakhtin began working on um, dialogics, that is, non-resolved interactions, not within the framework of novels, but within the framework of uh, conversations. And he began to ask himself, what does it mean to become a skilled listener? And the answer he gave to that was to try and break the notion that listening is a response to somebody else, whether of the dialectical sort or simply answering. He was interested in the phenomenon of how people, when they become skilled listeners, are able to penetrate between the words people speak to them and apprehend what they mean to say. And his argument is based very much on an analysis of 
Dostoevsky to James Joyce, don't get me started because you'll never go home. But the idea about it is that when we converse, basically we offer other people talismans of things that are not perfectly clear to us. And so the notion of a good, of a listening skill is gradually to unpack uh, what somebody else doesn't have the words to say clearly and to respond to what they intend rather than what they say. And for Bakhtin, that was seen as a prime condition of social cooperation. Rather than say, let's do something together, to be able to listen to what somebody really wants to do, which lies behind their words. The second aspect of dialogics is that this is a process which does not necessarily have to terminate in a common agreement or a common action. That is, it doesn't have a denouement. Dialogical interactions can leave things hanging, as we would think. And Bakhtin observes about this, as did Roman Jakobsen, who's great at, an interpreter of Bakhtin, that what that means is that the action of responding to another person can become itself the end of relating to them. That is, you don't cooperate together in order to arrive at a common understanding or make something uh, work. That's a very functionalist view of cooperation. You cooperate with other people to get deeper into something without having to have the expectation of a resolution. And this is the beginning social theory of a long discussion about process versus product in social interaction. I want to argue to you that dialogics of this sort is more productive in dealing with uh, people whom you don't understand, with whom you disagree or dislike, uh, or who are, who are foreign to you, uh, than the kind of dialectical process of coming together over a shared project. The second skill that's in, uh, involved in complex cooperation with people who are unlike yourself has to do with the distinction between declarative and subject, uh, subjunctive ways of expressing yourself. Declarative, if there are any Americans here, you, you don't need to be told what declarative speech is. I believe, you know, I think, you know, I am convinced. Uh, whereas subjunctive for, uh, forms of speech would have been, I would have thought, or in the academic version of this, what you say is so interesting. I just wanted to ask you a, a small question after which the punch comes. Uh, the one, in terms of social relationships, the declarative mode embodies what the philosopher Bernard Williams calls a fetish of assertion. And in Williams' writing about this fetish, his argument is, and I put this rather paradoxically, his argument is that the fetish of assertion is a way of uh, uh, extinguishing the other through conflict. I believe, you know, that um, Barack Obama is a secret Muslim. 
there's not much to discuss on, on those terms. Whereas the subjunctive mode is something that opens up a space for cooperation by creating ambiguity. And uh, in the studies that I've done of cooperation, difficult tasks in diplomacy, for instance, the rituals of subjunctivizing what otherwise could be purely declarative, I know this for a fact, we absolutely are sure that this is true, that kind of thing. The, the, the modes of expression which remove de declaration and certainty from human action make it possible for people uh, to talk uh, much more and interact much more productively with each other. I'll describe to you a little later how this works in the workplace between employers and employees. Uh, so the second proposition I put to you about complex cooperation is that it proceeds by opening up a space of ambiguity and removing the closure of declaration. Okay. That is, it removes this kind of foreclosure of interaction that's involved in declarative speech. Uh, the third aspect of this, I'm sorry to be a little theoretic about this, but uh, has to do with a distinction about the understanding of the other. Whom are you interacting with? Whom are you addressing? And here's there's this distinction between sympathy and empathy. I'm not going, my editor is here, and we've argued about which of these terms and of course you're right, but I'll still go ahead and present, present my, my, my views. Um, there's a fundamental distinction about how we conceive the other. Sympathy, as I understand it, um, it and as Adam Smith understands it, proceeds by identification. You see somebody fall down in the street or a beggar holding out his or her hand, and you go, there but for the grace of God go I. You identify with another person's pain or another person's interest. You, uh, you put the, yourself in their place, and therefore you reach out to them. And this is a kind of classic way of it's quite psychological, it's quite moralistic way of understanding the address to the other, which is involved in complex cooperation. I get outside of myself and into you. Uh, the opposite to that is empathy, which is a register that something matters to you or that something's going wrong with you which I recognize as important even though I can't put myself in your place or, or uh, 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 understand what you're feeling. It's, um, we really owe to, um, um, to a, an unlikely source, the sociologist Maurice uh, Janowitz, uh, one version of how empathy works. Uh, in his view, uh, empathy of this sort, where you recognize the other person is saying important to them, 
comes out of curiosity. That is, what is arousing you about the other is something that seems problematic and your address to them and engagement with them comes out of just being curious about what this puzzling phenomenon is about. It's a point that's been picked up uh, uh, by Thomas Kuhn, the sociologist of, of uh, I guess he's a sociologist of science, uh, who argues that advances in a laboratory uh, often come through the deployment of a curiosity about something which is strange, which you can't make sense of in Kuhnian terms, you can't identify with, but you know might be important. Um, in literature, uh, the notion of wonder would, would figure in the same sort of way. Uh, the umheimlich, as the Germans put it, the uncanny. Now, the difference between these two is between hot and cold. Sympathy is a hot emotion. My God, you're bleeding. I can feel it in my own arm, you know? Versus empathy, which is something a little cooler. What's going on here with this person? And I would argue to you again that what happens in complex forms of cooperation is that they must draw much more on the skills, on the, on the address of the other that's uh, mobilized by empathy than by sympathy. That is, by being in a situation where you are able to exercise curiosity about uh, uh, what's happening to somebody else rather than making the kind of claim, I feel your pain, which contains, as Hannah Arendt told us, that kind of sympathy contains a kind of <coughs> condescension. I can understand anything you're going through. You know? It's almost at the notion like, you know, nothing is foreign to me. You know? uh, whatever you feel, I can understand. Uh, so I would argue to you that these complex cooperation develops through dialogical uh, uh, forms of listening, through subject subjunctive forms of expression, which leave a space uh, for ambiguity, and through an address to the other, which is orientated uh, or rather which is uh, motivated by empathy rather than sympathy. Now I know this, the title of my book together suggests a kind of California touchy-feely, you know, we're all in this hot tub of life <laughs> together. But I think you can understand from where I've gotten this far in this overview that it's not a hot tub view of life. Uh, that the demanding sort of comp uh, cooperation is something whose temperature is a little lower and in which the differences between self and other are not erased. That is, and that goes back to the question of autonomy, 
When you learn to practice three, these three kinds of skills in expression with other people, you can become engaged with them while preserving a sense of autonomy. Now, I've talked rather theoretically so far. I now want to move in the second part of this talk to talk about a little more practically and sociologically. And that is uh, why we need to even think about all this theory at all is because in a way our society is becoming de-skilled in the practice of cooperation. That social and economic institutions are taking us farther and farther away from the practice of dialogics, subject subjunctive expression, and empathy. Um, I'm going to give you a big clonking explanation in my own view about why this is so. It has to do with the relationship between cooperation and time. And I'm going to try and illustrate this to you in the workplace. You'll see in one chapter of my very inexpensive, accessible book, um, that there is a contrast between an old-style factory uh, and uh, the back offices of modern Wall Street, where I did some, I and my students did some research uh, uh, just after financial crisis in 2008. And we had started out just by thinking we'd do a study of, you know, the, bust, the usual, you know, the blow-up of capitalism, how did it affect ordinary people, and so on, to be unemployed, and so on. But as we began to bring in these older um, work that I had done a long time before in a book called Hidden Injuries of Class, and that some of my students had carried out uh, after that, we began to see that something, even during the halcyon days of, uh, of the boom, uh, had radically transformed the experience of being together with other people at work from what was known a generation before. In the factory, the fact that people worked together for a very long time that they got to know each other, both peers and, in, uh, and superiors, meant that it was easier to develop each one of these three skills in an, an informalized manner. That is, people knew each other well enough that it was possible for them to create informal bonds of cooperation, uh, which didn't need to be vocalized. I'll give you an example of this. In the factory, uh, this is in the, late 19, in the 1970s, and the factories my other students studied in the early 80s. When somebody came in hungover from a very bad night out, other workers would cover for them. But the code of it was never saying, God, so-and-so is really a mess. Let's help him or her. It was a kind of unspoken, uh, 
wires are just covering so that the bosses wouldn't notice that something was going wrong on the line. When we interviewed people in the back rooms of Wall Street, these are not people at the very top, but they're people in, in, who are sort of middle-level Wall Street employees. When people needed to help other people out, it was always a subject for explicit discussion, negotiation. Um, uh, it was not something that you would say is instinctive, which is a wrong word to use. The notion was that you had to make clear to other people that you were helping them out because in the case of most of these back office workers, they were pretty badly addicted to uh, coke, amphetamines, and so on. That's what kept them going for 12, 14 hours a day. But it was always something that had to be made an issue. Uh, the reason for that is that these Wall Street workers were people who associated with each other for very short periods of time. Their turnover in the back offices of Wall Street, the firms we studied, which in, included um, the, the deeply uh, lamented uh, Lehman Brothers. Uh, we studied uh, uh, people who had, who had worked for J.P. Morgan. Uh, anyhow firms of that sort. These, these are not people getting huge bonuses. These are they're doing very well, much better than any of us will do. But, uh, but they were employees. And they would move from firm to firm like going through a glass door. And because their relationships were short term, they required more definition, more explication, and therefore moved to a more um, this declarative uh, poll that when help had to come forward, uh, it had to be of a sort that was, I can identify with you and I'll say it to you, um, form, rather than simply to, uh, to understand something uh, informally because you had the time to really know who that other person was. This is true of many other aspects of what's called the new economy. Its time frame is short. Uh, in media, for instance, the modal uh, contract now is three months. People uh, uh, move around BBC, that's the modal contract form. In high tech, as I found when, when, I, when I was uh, working on high tech employees, the average length of job tenure is between eight months and 14 months. Now, under those conditions, cooperation, if it's to be practiced at all, uh, has to be something that is made contractual, explicit, what I'm doing for you. The zero-sum game aspect is brought forward. Question of self-sacrifice, what are you going to give me in return, comes back. And as a result, the actual strength of cooperation withers. And this is the point I want to make to you, this, this whole point of this lecture. That what we've had in the so-called flexible economy is something that looks to all of us as though it's messier than the old bureaucratic social, uh, social capitalism of a generation ago. And in fact, I'd argue to you that sociologically that's not the case. 
that's what's happened in terms of social experiences work like cooperation is that they have become more and more rigid, more and more like contractual relations, and less and less like experiential relations bred out of long, longer-term knowledge of other people. Do you understand what I'm saying? Always we think about flexible capitalism as a system of deregulation. But to me, sociologically, it is, and in terms of a phenomenon like cooperation, it is a regulatory order demanding more and more explication, definition, putting a greater emphasis on product rather than process. Um, the gaps between people overcome uh, only by uh, identification with others rather than the experiential frame uh, that's involved in empathy. And not surprisingly, what we found with these back office workers, and I, I found it also with the techies that, and people in culture industries that I work with, is that the fear is constantly a fear of being stabbed in the back, a betrayal. That cooperation is weak because there's no exper long-term experiential base of back and forth, helping the other person out, covering, and so on. So that what erodes the practice of cooperation is a gnawing anxiety that these contracts can be broken at almost any time, uh, that you can be betrayed, stabbed in the back, uh, that cooperation itself is a moral gesture rather than a collective bond. Do you understand what I'm saying about this? When cooperation becomes a moral gesture rather than a collective bond, it weakens. Now, I told you I didn't have a rather hot tub view <laughs> of um, cooperation, of togetherness in the abstract. I would also say that applied to this kind of situation, which I sketched out to you, which you can read more about in my book, that the moralizing of cooperation, in, particularly in workplaces, is a way of giving it more uh, uh, emotional force, but weakening the actual practice. Uh, we don't want to have a hot tub view of cooperation in the workplace. It is not a moral good in the sense of being something where you make a moral gesture to somebody else. It has to have a different kind of framework. Let me conclude by saying that what I'm not going to talk about at the end of this talk is what the consequence of this is for politics. However, <laughs> Since I am a believer in cooperatives and in the kind of bottom-up politics that is based on cooperation, uh, I think an error that we have people like on the left, like me, who have believed in cooperation as kind of solidity for pol politics as well as for the workforce, um, have made is by making it in, uh, into a moral good 
uh, into a kind of hot tub uh, uh, goal, rather than looking at it as a cooler uh, bond which preserves uh, the dimensions of, of uh, autonomy and admits a great deal of, co of competition as well. What I do want to end with is to say something about uh, where I see in civil society the remedy for the de-skilling of cooperation, such as we're seeing now in neoliberal capitalism. Um, you'll understand from what I've said that in order to develop the reality of cooperation, as an experience which is not self-conscious, which is not a moral, uh, which is not a kind of moral talisman. That what people need is time. They need time together. And what I've been arguing the last 10 years, both in my books and in public events, is that we need to develop the kinds of intermediary institutions in modern capitalism that give people a sustained sense of living together in time. For me, this has been a matter of rethinking what unions should be. And it's something I put a lot of energy, thought and energy into. That people's experience of uh, joining unions, working through them, and so on, it can be a way of giving them the kinds of long-term relations with people who are different that develop skills of cooperation. My modal ideal, or my ideal union in this uh, uh, case, is something called the Service Workers International Union, uh, which is uh, now coming to Britain. It's been in the US for a long time. Which has understood that unions are much more than vehicles for negotiating protections of workers uh, or wages. That they have to become intermediary communities. The SIEU, uh, for instance, it sponsors um, what, what other unionists think of as frills. It has an annual art festival, national art festival, it has an, a website which is an uh, alternative to eBay and another website which is an alternative to Emily's List. It works as, a, um, as an employment agency. It al also has a directory of psychological counseling and social counseling for people who are unemployed. It operates like a community among strangers. And the results of this is that it's gaining more and more adherence because it offers an experience. It is truly a cooperative on a national scale. And I want to see this kind of change in union organizing occur so that unions become the vehicle um, for people learning the skills of cooperation with those who differ. The SIEU is the most ethnically and skills diverse union in, in the world. It's got people who do everything. There is no craft basis to it. If you want to join, they want you. 
and it gradually puts people into these networks. The other civil society aspect of this has to do with something, surprise, surprise, with cities, which is that we don't really think about as much as we should about ways to design, organize, and live in urban space so that we get out of our comfort zone and interact at the edges with other communities. Uh, often urban planners and designers, not the people in this room who are deeply enlightened, uh, by sealing communities in or, make, uh, or making the centers of communities centers of places that are people mostly the same, um, de-skill uh, people's ability to deal with, to be, feel comfortable in the presence of strangers. Now this isn't verbal communication. It's a whole different set of problems and, and, and opening the door to a whole other issue in this conclusion. It's about the notion of being comfortable in the presence of difference, which is the foundation of that social competence I talked about in the beginning of this lecture. And that comfort is visceral. If when you walk down the street and you see somebody with an Islamic beard and your first notion is, that's a terrorist, or you walk down the street and, you're, and you see an African-American or an Asian and you think, that person is a threat. The possibilities of cooperation are, um, no matter uh, what your mindset is, are viscerally gone. Uh, the notion that you are physically comfortable in the presence of people unlike yourselves is, I would say, the bodily dimension to the social processes that I've been talking about this evening. And that bodily dimension is a challenge, I think, for the making of modern cities, which are increasingly segregating people, making them comfortable only in the skins of people like themselves. So I'm sorry to be so long-winded. Well, I'm not that long-winded. Um, I've covered a couple of thi uh, three things for you tonight. I've talked a little about the ways in which cooperation, uh, the overall framing of cooperation in terms of this movement from which we would all instantly understand it from, from, from uh, social capitalism to neoliberal capitalism is correct, but maybe doesn't get enough under the surface. We want to understand what phenomenon like isolation, aggression, uh, what role they play in the uh, inability to, to cooperate. We want to understand, most of all, the cooperation with people who differ, which is the focus of my work, is a skill we're born with the ability to cooperate, but in order to do this kind of cooperation, we have to develop skills. I've described three of them to you in social interactions. One, the dialogic, second, the subjunctive, and third, the empathic. I've argued to you that modern society, modern capitalism, is de-skilling people 
in practicing cooperation in a specific way by shortening the time frame of association. And it argued finally, as a, just a little coda to this, that a role that civil society can play in reskilling people in cooperation is providing networks of long-term association between strangers. You can do that in intermediate um, organizations like unions, but in a more visceral way, you can enable this through physical acquiring that sense of, of competence, of self-competence and self-confidence when people are physically in the presence of strangers. And that's what I think modern city planning should be all about. So thank you for being such an attentive audience, and I'd be glad to answer any questions and any arguments if suitably put in a dialogical subjunctive. <laughs> I have to say also, this is the last time I talk about this subject in public for months, so uh, uh, whatever you tell me is what I'll take away in private. Okay, we'll just allow a minute or so for people who have to go off to their union branch meetings to leave in an orderly fashion. Um, before, as we allow people to collect their thoughts and gather their tweets uh, for the dialogic moment, may I take the first question? Of course. Um, I was struck, of course, by the contrasting example of the factory in the back office. And as you were speaking, I was thinking, well, the obvious, well, one of the many obvious differences between these two workplaces is that one you would expect would be a unionized workplace, and the other you would expect probably would not be. And then, of course, you answered my question before I'd even had the opportunity to ask it. Um, so it brought into my mind another sociological concept alongside that of cooperation, which is that of solidarity. And the trade union movement in this country, in response to the early rhetoric of the coalition government, said, you're looking for the big society, you've got it right here. We're doing it in the trade union movement uh, as an institution which right. e in, you know, mediates these relationships in workplaces and outside workplaces. So the question that I finished with, given it was already partially answered, You've spoken about the shortening of the time frame of association as being crucial, but what about inequality? What is the effect of that on the skills of cooperation in this respect? Because you're describing a, a competitive workplace, but also a very unequal one. Right. This is a wonderful question, and it's a, uh, and it's a very complicated one. Uh, our initial impulse is to say that inequality and cooperation uh, are um, in conflict with each other. But if we think for a moment about, in a, in a larger framework, say about military life, uh, um, or indeed about, uh, about uh, uh, schools, that uh, people can occupy unequal status and still work together. I mean, if inequality and cooperation were opposites, uh, no, no army could ever fight a war, it would be impossible for people to learn, and so on. 
The question is, what are the terms of that uh, inequality? And I give you my own view of this. It's not something I've talked about in this book, but I've talked about it very much in terms, uh, I've talked about it in other books, mm -hmm. in terms of the way in which uh, neoliberalism frames inequality. It frames it in terms of, of a, a kind of, um, what you could, a kind of moralizing of the top, uh, uh, of people who are at the very top of the society, as a kind of success pattern for everybody else. This is implicit in the notion of meritocracy. If you really want to achieve, you will be one of those one in 20 or one in 100 or one in 1,000 uh, who moves up. If you're in a subordinate position, it means that something in you failed. Now, for those of you who um, know new labor, you will know what this kind of moralizing of inequality was like. Mm -hmm. That is, the effort was always that, you know, there are these deserving poor, these wonderful young people buried in poverty and they should be rescued and we should help them rise by their own merits out of the morass. And what that meant, New Labor, was that you seized on the one in 20 and neglected the other 19. And um, may I say this institution participated in the architecture of creating meritocracy on that form. I don't want to revisit old arguments in the school, but I am an opponent of meritocracy. And the reason I'm an opponent of it is that it mistakes talent and unusualness for, for a kind of supremacy. What we want in situations where people are, for instance, financially different, is no notion of moralizing those who have been successful. And we're getting there at the moment. Nobody no longer believes that bankers are sort of better at life than the rest of us. But if you think back about 10 years ago, the ideology of this meritocratic regime was of enabling upward social mobility, which is a kind of abandonment. And one of the consequences of moralizing social mobility is that the possibility of people cooperating across that gulf becomes impossible. Impossible, because you don't cooperate as mutually respecting individuals. And we saw that in schools under this meritocratic uh, process, the terrible, terrible, effects it had on the schoolroom, and we see it in the workplace as well. In the workers that I interviewed, I'm sorry I'm giving you a very long answer on this, but very, you raise a very important question. Many of the workers that I interviewed in the 70s, my students interviewed in the 80s, had no expectation of social mobility. They were, they knew they were, you know, working class, that's how the chips fell out. It was a social condition which had nothing to do with their personal character. They didn't feel bad about making judgments of the boss, and within the limits of not 
getting fired, they were pretty straightforward because this was their condition in life. It didn't seem to demean them that they were workers. What we found in Wall Street, this is a bizarre situation among people making $100,000 a year, was the unspoken imputation that somehow they had been less good at their work than the people who were making 500000 or a million because of this transformation, this meritocratic transformation of class relations. And of course they were full of resentment and also of a kind of self-accusation. And when we interviewed uh, people who were unemployed, one of the things they were working out was, was this a further stage of failure because they'd been let go? Or was there something in the situation itself which had been destructive? So peculiarly, the less, personal, uh, the less you personalize a situation of inequality, hmm. the more I think it's capable, you're capable of cooperating with and being socially responsive to the people above you. And this, this to me has been, it's been a terrible thing that has gone on in this country in the last 20 years. And we're only getting more of this now with our present masters. Anyhow. Perhaps if people could indicate that they wish to ask questions, and we'll take a few in tandem. Okay, so we have one uh, mic in the middle and then two over here. Will you listen to the three? I'll try. I'm, I'm a bird of little brain, so please be brief so I can remember. Okay. <laughs> um, Mike Cushman, I'm the UCU yes. branch secretary here. And you Fran are should, my shop steward. And, and Fran should well know the branch meeting is on Thursday and I'm not now. I'm teaching, Mike, I'm afraid. Okay, I'll take your apology. I'll be apology. there for the last half hour. Time. However, <laughs> However, I mean, apart from worrying that I now have to organize poetry festivals as well as deal with Craig. I'll ask, <laughs> I'll ask my question, which is, I'm very interested in what you're saying about time, but I'm wondering whether you are overemphasizing it, because when I was doing work on, research work on construction sites, which were a highly mobile labor force, yeah, people didn't know if they'd be working with the same people the next day there was still strong experience of solidarity because people knew who the enemy was. They knew the enemy was the foreman. I mean, for much of what you were giving in the answer to Fran. And it's this individuation of reward, an individuation of expectation that we're seeing in the postmodern workplace as opposed to the modernist workplace. Right. But Mike, wouldn't you also say that they had strong unions they, that well, I don't know about in the United States, but in the United Kingdom, construction unions, apart from on a few sites, was notoriously weak. Ah, that's a difference. Well, I, take your, I, I certainly take your point. I mean, you can overemphasize a time issue. I guess the reason I want to do that, and it comes back to the issue about solidarity, is that you know, cooperation is uh, more complex than solidarity, you know? You can cooperate with people f with whom you feel very little solidarity, and oftentimes in life, we, that's, that's what we need to learn mm -hmm. to do. 
But I take your point. I may, I don't have a monocausal explanation of this, but um, certainly in the labor, well, anyhow, I take your point. <laughs> okay, we have two questions. Yeah. Also uh, related to the issue of time, I'm, I'm Daniel DeHannes from Bristol University, and um, I thought that what you said was very, very slow and actually refreshingly slow, and um, okay. you know, uh, good. cuts against a lot of the sort of short-termism that you that you often see in politics, um, which I thought was was quite interesting. Um, but I'm, I'm quite interested in particular in um, multicultural politics and citizenship and issues of living together with people who are religiously or ethnically different uh, than, than one is. Um, and um, I think that um, what you've said about uh, dialogics um, is quite interesting because often solutions to this are very short term and just very uh, cut and dried and simple. So I think the sort of Britishness um, idea that Gordon Brown brought forward was very was quite was a little bit too easy and too neat. Um, and I also think that um, the way that David Cameron speaks about muscular liberalism and just sort of cutting off multiculturalism essentially, seems like it's just a very, very quick way of trying to put this problem at bay. Um, so I'd just be very interested in what kinds of uh, dialogic uh, sort of solutions or ideas you have for moving forward in sort of a civic multiculturalism or those sorts of, those sorts of issues. Well, um, I'll just tell you about uh, something that I analyze in my book, which is a conflict between Korean grocers in New York and their African-American customers. And it's a conflict uh, had, it had many dimensions to it, but it became quite violent. There were 2,000 incidents of violent incidents of attacks on these Korean grocers and so on. After a lot of interaction, you know what they came to? They stopped talking about their differences. And they both learned to practice kind of diplomatic silence for the sake of recovering uh, a way of living together. And if I can just riff a moment on that. What drives me crazy about multiculturalism is the notion that everything has to be explained in terms of though we differ we what we share, you know, of speaking together and so on. One of the ways in which it's true in lots of dimensions of life that we cooperate with other people is not talking about the things that we know are going to be explosive. You know? In modernity, everything seems to need to be verbalized. You know? But in fact, in complex cooperation, oftentimes the unverbalized, the unprogrammatic, the sort of stuff that a think tank would go out of business if, you know, if it recommends, you know, silence because speech is impossible. They'd all be out of business. But, you know, that's a reality of social life. And um, so I, I'd like to see much less talk about multiculturalism. I'd like to see people like Ricky Burdett and Philip Broda make multiculturalism a more visceral experience, you know? Something that just happens in the street rather than something that's a program. Could you do that for us? They're <laughs> working on it. Please. Um, hi. Um, my name is Jack Tan, and um, I'm from the Royal College of Art. Um, and I've got a question about rights, um, in particular human rights, um, in that rights and human rights seem 
uncompromising, and that's our notion. It seems that our notion of it is uncompromising, declaratory. So is there a space for the subjunctive and the dialogical within discourses of human rights and our notions of right, civil, or human? That is a terrific question to which I don't have the answer. <laughs> no, I mean, it's a really profound I think there could be a question. book in that, Richard. <laughs> it's a, can you have an implicit right which can't be verbalized? I have to think about that. Uh, maybe you can't. Maybe this is the limit of the social. We have a question down here. And my editor has a question. He's, he's in the queue. But and then one up here. And then, and then, and then your editor and then your wife. Oh, my God. <laughs> and after that, we'll go have something yes. to drink next door. You're actually going to ask me a question about this? It came up. All right. Well, thank you for preferring me to your editor and your wife first. Um, <laughs> this is a real family evening. You know. I'm William Chan. I'm, um, yeah. I work in the financial sector. It's hard to ask a question of a lecture that starts out with babies and goes into the, uh, the most brutalist, um, postmodern, uh, globalized workplace. But may maybe I should ask you a question from both ends. Um, a lot of your citations are to uh, Western child right. psychology. Um, as an expectant father, I've been reading a lot of books, uh, maybe too many, about different ways Western, American, Asian ways of raising babies. And of course, there are a lot of differences. Yeah. So one is, um, in your studies, in your, in your work, are you, are you dependent on a certain developmental psychology, or are there very different multicultural differences in the development of together skills? And then on, on, the, on the other end... Um, that's, that's a huge question already. I apologize. Just, your answer has to be good because this is the last evening you're going to be out for some time. <laughs> <laughs> a few months. I have a few months. Uh, the, the other one, which is... Um, and the gentleman from the union, uh, I think, raised it. We are, we are in a postmodern workplace. Uh, like it or not, the issues of time and space are being changed by right. globalization. I mean... Um, I'm, a new, I'm new to Europe, but I'm, I'm seeing a lot of nativist re, uh, backlash to, um, to some of the um, divisive um, com competitive issues relating to uh, globalization. I mean, um, almost every European country I'm, I'm following has gone uh, nativist or uh, gone localist right. against the perceived threat of the other. Um, but the fact is, it's not going to change. Uh, the workplace will become increasingly less time and more space attenuated. How does togetherness, uh, cooperation, gonna fare in this increasingly more time crunch, space expanded, i.e. less face-to-face -face and much less time to develop these skills in the, uh, in the new environment? Thank you. Yeah, why don't you answer that? That's your subject. Let's take a couple more questions. You wanna continue thinking, this one up here, please. Yeah. Hi, I'm Roxanne. I work in local government. Um, I was interested in what you said about declarative and subjunctive speech, and I think that people like declarative speech. It seems to me that we're drawn to people who speak in a very declarative manner, whether it be politicians or figures in the media. Um, so do you think people are naturally drawn to people who speak in this way? Um, and if so, how can we maybe promote or popularize a more subjunctive kind of uh, dialogue? 
And um, you also talk about the design of urban space and the making of modern cities. And I just wanted to probe a little deeper and ask, well, who should make them? Um, is it not the case that sometimes communities naturally and organically um, come together in, right. in spaces? And would that not be a cooperation in itself, a natural form of relationships and cooperation? Um, and how do you propose that we encourage this kind of um, cooperation with others when there is an organic banding together of ethnic groups? Well, your, two questions, your two questions are actually mm. related because a lot of the binding ties of those local communities are becoming more nativist, more rejecting of the outside, and so on. So, uh, or that's at least a, a danger. Um, I just very briefly want to re reply to your, your first observation, which is spot on. It's a form of declaration invites submission. And it invites submission because somebody else defines for you clearly what something is about. And that's, I mean, it's, this is an entirely um, um, original uh, observation on, on my part. This is what Guy Debord and other people about society of spectacle were about, uh, writing about. When you hear somebody go, you know, I'm going to put very clearly exactly what we all want. You have submitted to that person. There's almost an erotics of that. They really know what they're on about. They really know who they are. And you become a spectator to their definiteness. And that to me is a danger. Do you understand what I'm saying? What you say is absolutely correct, but it is a form of self-submission, almost an erotic form of giving up the self to somebody who seems more defined, more purposive, and so on. Let's, let's mm. go forward. Don't, te don't tell me now that page 25 is all wrong. <laughs> this is my editor, great editor, Stuart Prophet, who Whatever is good in this book is partially due to him. Richard, I wanted to ask you a question about... But you have to put the microphone... I wanted to you. ask you a question about an aspect of your subtitle that you haven't said anything about so far this evening. That, that is rituals. Um, a two-part question. Is part of the answer to uh, the question asked earlier by uh, one of your former colleagues about uh, um, cooperation in, uh, say, building sites between uh, workers who might change every day, and why there is cooperation in such a situation, even though there is no continuity of time, is part of the answer to that uh, conundrum, the, the, uh, the matter of ritual. And secondly, um, some, of, some people here may have attended the very memorable day which marked the end of your uh, formal uh, academic appointment at the LSE was it 80 months ago in the Zamin Theatre um, round the corner and the, the morning was uh, a series of discussions about work, uh, the, the afternoon was a series of discussions about cities and the final hour was you uh, on stage with a person that 
that some people might have felt was an un unlikely interlocutor, that is uh, Rowan Williams, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And you were talking together about, about uh, your work. What have you learned from the Archbishop of Canterbury about ritual? Oh, what a wicked question. Well, uh, Stuart is bringing up an aspect of the book I haven't talked about. Um, part of the reason that I'm not entirely happy with this simple framing of the problem of cooperation moving from corporate, uh, from social capitalism to neoliberal capitalism, is that there's a much earlier dislodgement of social I I understandings of cooperation. And that occurs in the Reformation. And third chapter of my book is about that dislodgement, which is an argument with the Weber Protestant ethic uh, and a quite different view. And I'll give it to you in a nutshell. Antecedent to this change in capitalism is the notion that cooperation is not something embedded in ritual, but is something that comes out of the desire of the self to cooperate with others. And that notion that the desire to cooperate comes from within, come, and that is moral, is a profound challenge that Protestantism, particularly Luther, uh, offered to the Catholic, uh, to the to the Catholic world uh, against which he rebelled. In Catholicism, as is still true in Islam or in Judaism, cooperation is not an act of choice. That is, you morally enjoined to cooperate through certain rituals. Uh, in Judaism it's, uh, and, and Islam, it's a matter of, of um, uh, tithing yourself, taking care of uh, the sick and elderly, and so on. It's not a personal experience. It's something that's encoded in very strict ritual. That was true for uh, some aspects of the Catholicism against which Luther uh, rebelled. His notion was that cooperation is something you come to desire. And that's a profound schism which creates uh, an essential aspect of modern society. That is, cooperation is not a duty, it's a desire. And you cannot desire it. You know, a desire is an act of will. And uh, at that point, the ritual aspect of cooperation is called into question because you can exit at any time, right? If you lose the desire, if you lose the will. As indeed uh, Protestantism in the 17th, 16th, 17th century is a long story of people saying, I don't want to cooperate with those people. I want to cooperate with another sort of people. I want which is something that would have been irrelevant to Catholicism and is still irrelevant 
to us Jews and uh, for people in Islam. What I want is not the point of cooperation. It's not a desire. So this unsettling of ritual is, I think, the way back, you know, it's a precursor to what happens in capitalism. However, and this comes back to the issue of why I emphasize time in this. If you get into the habit, and that habit becomes unconscious and informal of cooperating with other people, the question of desire can recede. It's just something that normally happens in your life. Whereas if it's each time a decision, you will not develop that kind of ritualized engagement with other people. And my argument to you about, about what's happening in modern capitalism is that precisely it's making this question of do I want to do this encoded into a kind of formality of if I do this then blah blah and blah blah. And that is a way of undoing the sense of being in a cooperative situation and thinking about it as an object of desire and will. And the final question to Saskia. Uh, since we have to introduce ourselves, I'm the wife, also known as Saskia Sass. I'm also known as the husband, so <laughs> that's just uh, quite an equal marriage. So, so. so very quickly, on the one hand, cooperation as a craft. Yeah. The normative input of cooperation. I mean, the mafia also co cooperates. Absolutely. Destructive financial traders. In your presentation, there seemed to be a kind of a positive normative aspect. The term itself, cooperation, is seen in positive terms mostly, I think. Culturally speaking, it doesn't have to be that, you know. So any, any thoughts about that? We can continue this at home. Too. <laughs> <laughs> well, i just make a final obs uh, observation about this. Um, first of all, I, I look at it as positive because I think, apart from the mafia and, uh, and people uh, in Goldman Sachs, that ordinary people are not experiencing uh, 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 that the experience of cooperation is weak. Um, there are two further distinctions to be made about this. One is cooperation and collusion, which is uh, uh, the old distinction, you know, the fable of the bees and so on, that all cooperation is a form of mafia activity. Uh, the other is the distinction between cooperation and coordination, which comes out of the division of labor. And I guess it's appropriate to end this, this evening on a sociological note. For Durkheim, the division of labor, which is essentially the coordination of various tasks, is not cooperation. Why isn't it? Because the coordination of tasks is something that involves no awareness of other people. That's why he calls it mechanical solidarity. And what is called in English organic solidarity is the notion that you are aware of whom you are cooperating with. Now for Durkheim, who is a good socialist, a really good socialist, as was Marcel Mauss, and who is his nephew and um, nephew? Right. 
in that whole strand of socialist thought, the notion was that the awareness of the other was the difference between collaboration cooperation was you have this awareness of the other, and it was chaleureux, it was warm, it was an embrace. And my notion, and I am also a committed socialist, uh, but my notion is that that embrace is mediated and cool. And this is a big split among people about thinking about how do we motivate people for uh, this, this project. My notion is that people are more strongly motivated the cooler they are, the more empathic they are. Whereas for Durkheim, you couldn't push a revolutionary program, revolutionary change, without heat. And this is a big debate uh, on the left. It's a debate, but uh, you know, as many you mentioned, the Western and non-Western side. This is a Western debate, and it's a debate within the framework of democratic socialism. If you're faced with uh, Gaddafi uh, or with Assad, you need heat. It's a different kind of cooperation because it's a different set of circumstances. I've set this book within the context, if you like, of the world that's familiar to us, which is a world, European, North American world, uh, which is not violent in the same way, but which does violence to people in more subtle ways that take more effort to, to undo. So thank you all for coming. Let's have a drink. Before, just before <laughs> we leave, by, and be, just if you can hold yeah. your applause for one moment, by way of conclusion, can I remind you that Richard's very inexpensive book is on sale outside, and he may be persuadable to sign the odd copy oh, as right. well right. if you present them to the author. And yes, uh, may I reinforce Richard's invitation to join us for a drink in the atrium just as you, you, to your left as you leave the theatre. Thank you all for your attention thank you. and contribution. And thank you, Richard. Thank you.